Greetings, Commanders, and welcome to the returning episode of Data Slate. This is Lave Radio's sister podcast, where we talk a little bit about science fiction and fantasy writing. We review books. We talk to new authors about their books as well. And joining me tonight is a guest author who we're going to be talking a bit more about and who's going to be joining us at LaveCon this year, uh, this being our fifth LaveCon, LaveCon 2017. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our guest author. And for tonight, that is Anna Smith-Spark. Greetings, Anna. Hi, hi, Alan. Hi, everyone. So for those of you that don't know Anna, she's a debut author with HarperCollins and her first book, The Court of the Broken Knives, is coming out this year. We're going to be talking a little bit more about that as the episode goes on and we'll be talking to familiarise you guys with what she's up to really. So greetings Anna, but what we're also going to do before we get to that is talk a little bit about the scene of science fiction, fantasy and horror writing in the UK. As we know, we obviously have the literature that uh, that was produced with Elite Dangerous, but aside from that, there's also a wider field of science fiction, a wider field of fantasy, and a wider field of horror that we can all appreciate and experience. And uh, we're going to go through a few things relating to that and to give you a bit of an idea of what's going on this year with regards to conventions and events. So one of the things that recently happened, Easter being just gone, is that both Anna and I were in attendance at EasterCon, which is the annual science fiction convention associated with the British Science Fiction Association and also plays host to the British Science Fiction Association Awards. Now, this is a weekend over the Easter weekend that uh, people travel up to the place where it's hosted. Uh, This year was in Birmingham. Last year was in Manchester. And it's a collection of of different workshops, different panels, different talks, different readings, different events uh, over four days, allowing people to spend some time with publishers, spend some time with agents, spend some time listening to great new writers and uh, really getting a chance to get an idea of what's going on. So I know... Anna, this wasn't your first EasterCon, was it? This was your second, your third? This is my second, yes. It's a lovely con, actually. It's really friendly. It's really kind of, there's a real energy to it. I, um, I'm not, I don't want to say this on radio, I'm not a huge science fiction person. I'm much more into fantasy and historical fiction. But I really, really enjoy EasterCon, actually. It's kind of, it's a slightly different group of people to the people I'm most used to on the fantasy scene but it's a really really lovely bunch of people who really got some really interesting ideas about about the genre and about culture and writing yeah and I think the the sort of the crossover between the different genres is kind of important there because you know we do have writers who will write fantasy will write science fiction will write horror but also you know writers who only write fantasy or only write science fiction or only write horror and also you've got subgenres, you know, sort of related to that. EasterCon's particularly good at being embracing of all of it, wouldn't you say? It is, yes. It's, yes. I mean, I didn't go in the past because I the first time I found out about it, so I assumed because it was the British Science Fiction Association, it probably wouldn't be the place for me. But actually, no, they get a lot of fantasy in and there's a lot of cross sort of talking. I mean, in a sense, whether you're talking about people riding a dragon with a sword or someone in a spaceship it's actually quite similar magic and very high tech essentially kind of meet in terms of just people writing about wonders and trying to explore something that's really beyond 
the kind of mundanity of life now and there's a real sense of that that it's, this is all actually kind of it is all actually one and the same thing and it's just interesting ways of thinking about things sort of imaginative writing i guess is probably a broad church to describe it do you think i mean that that to me seems to be uh, a fairly good explanation yes no that yeah no i think you're completely right it's that kind of um some of it's the kind of the spec- speculative fiction so i suppose british fantasy society in fact has got that kind of weird fiction the kind of fantasy horror intersection and the british science fiction association yeah there's much more sense of it being that kind of speculative fiction trying to really think about other communities other societies other worlds other ways of living other possibilities and i did quite a few sessions talking about disability while i was there they did a mini track on writing in the genre around disability and actually what i was trying to really get people talking about what people were really interested in talking about was the kind of find to find using science fiction fantasy to really talk about other possible ways of being than just being a kind of standard 21st century human yeah so i I think in part that kind of opens out doesn't it towards how we represent characters in our our work and this particularly works in in science fiction because you know there are quite known authors who have have looked at different representations of humanity um in different ways so you know either adapted humanity or a cross-section of humanity as we see it today um, and trying to find ways to to represent you know anybody uh, in a science fiction setting uh, so that so that people have characters they can relate to and perhaps relate to their own personal circumstances yeah i mean yes i'm a big fan of ian and banks culture novels and they kind of touch on that the kind of myriad possibilities of the body I mean, I really love things like Babylon 5 and Star Trek, where you have the very traditional, you know, all the alien races that mysteriously look just like humans with slightly odd heads. But like, the kind of much more interesting range area of speculative fiction is that kind of really looking at what the body means and people who live in sort of maybe inhabit totally different kind of body or, in mm. fact, it's computer downloads now and that. That's really really interesting and I mean it's easy, of course much harder with fantasy but I'd like to think in my own little way I'm kind of trying <laughs> to kind of think about that a little when I write. Sure and and I think I mean obviously that does stem out a little bit of the cyberpunk area doesn't it in terms of getting a, a concept of what it is to be human um, and what it isn't or you know what it is to be machine what it is to be human and kind of um, interrogating that question from a variety of angles so that the the reader can sort of think about think about ideas of humanity you know in terms of what's there um, I, and I, I think that that kind of leads us into the fact that one of the the guests of honor at EasterCon this year was was Pat Cadigan who obviously is incredibly well known for her her cyberpunk writing um, and her interrogation of what it is to be human but you were saying about how you're trying to look at that um i know we've talked a little bit about some of the you know the representations of this and obviously you're working in fantasy and and perhaps slightly darker fantasy which we're going to come on to talk about your work in in a minute in that regard but how do you see fantasy approaching this uh, this issue fantasy really hasn't for ages i mean again you get the very kind of stereotypical different races where you get humans and you get elves who are like humans but taller and thinner and better looking and very very wise and you get dwarves who are like humans but short and fat and 
considerably less attractive. And you get orcs who are just like humans, but really bad and horrible. And fantasy just hasn't really addressed that, which again, I mean, given the kind of possibilities that magic, things like magic and shape shifting have inherent within them, seems really quite disappointing. I mean, I don't know, presumably. Some people are going to come up with loads of examples of amazing books that I just haven't read, which do deal with this in a huge way. But I, do, I feel kind of, because fantasy, I think, stems from probably a more traditional basis. I mean, people kind of talk about science fiction, speculative fiction are very much about kind of exploring, asking questions, really interrogating society. Whereas fantasy tends to be more conservative. It tends to be much more rooted in the, the male hero archetype. And in a sense... I guess without tech, without computers, without the idea of the cyborg body, it is more difficult to do that. But I think that fantasy needs to kind of needs to address that much more. Needs to kind of think much more about more interesting ways of writing. I mean, Adrian Tchaikovsky is quite an interesting one because he's been writing on about shapeshifters recently, and of course his insects is series called The Shadow of the Apt, where he, all his different he has sort of different tribes who have got insect characteristics. So people are doing it, but then Adrian also. It's a science fiction writer as well, rather than a kind of more historical fantasy novelist. Yeah, and and I think, I mean, I guess if we touch on sort of the mechanics there, I guess obviously we're quite used to the idea of technology explained in terms of it being solutions or it being uh, adaptations and what have you in, you know, to cope with, um, with particular shortcomings that anybody might suffer in an environment. And I guess... That's one way of looking at this, but we're perhaps not so accustomed to seeing the devices of fantasy being used in that kind of that kind of way, that kind of day to day, you know, sort of use. There's obviously there's a trope. I don't know if you've ever used it, but uh, I've seen it used in particular TV series and seen it used in other stuff. The trope of the magical addiction when somebody uses magic on a day to day basis and becomes so sort of connected with their magic and and so you know um so it becomes normal to them then it's some kind of addiction and it's some kind of problem and it becomes you know an element of punishment that uh, that they need to go cold turkey and sort of get out of it and you know and I'll agree with you here I mean perhaps we're both having shortcomings in terms of what we're reading but I don't think we are it's less predominant to see magic used in that kind of day-to-day adaptive nature uh, to allow people to to do the things that they want to do. If magic was, I suppose, if magic was available for absolutely everybody in a fantasy world, perhaps magic would cease to be magical, and then you'd be moving really into a very strange speculative world where kind of magic was just absolutely. I guess it would it would cease to be magical. It would be kind of mm. in, sight is magical. Being able to see is incredibly magical. Being able to see and watch the sunrise is an unbelievably miraculous magical thing. But of course, we don't think about it like mm. that. It's just one of the normal human senses. And I guess if you had a world where everyone was imbued in with magic like that, where it was a simply commonplace of daily life, it would maybe. It would certainly change it. It would actually be a very interesting thing to write, a world in which everyone just had multiple, had perhaps more senses or more more abilities. I mean, being able to run, again, actually, if you think about it, is an incredible thing. Mm. But, no, it, it's not. It's just, it's just obviously, we couldn't function without, sort of, without being mobile. So light is one of the key characteristics of life. So, you know, it would be an interesting world to create where people had these other things, other powers, 
other abilities, other senses, and they were just perfectly normal. But it it wouldn't be magic in the traditional sense. Yeah, and it's kind of turning us into, you know, uh, it becomes almost an expression of what is humanity again, isn't it? Because we're then we're starting to um, to explore ability that is not ability that we necessarily have and fantasy traditionally explores that by using magic as as wondrous as you know as celebrated as as difference but it'd be interesting to see how that you know how that kind of works so it's just sort of suddenly thinking about it i mean yes i'm coming because i've grown up with a very kind of tolkien tradition of you know, magic is this kind of strange, which comes from obviously from from myth, from Tolkien's if Tolkien studies as a student, as a sort of as a professor of Middle English of Norse mythology. That kind of magic is this kind of magic is this kind of powerful thing wielded by a particular sorcerer, wizard class cast. Actually, thinking about it, a guy called Michael R. Fletcher, who's a friend of mine, he does a series novel beyond redemption the mirror's truth and swarm and steel which uh, his whole world is called um manifest delusions and basically his premise is that belief defines reality so therefore the more essentially the more kind of the more mentally ill one is the more one's kind of has more one has delusions you actually shape the world around you so you mm. can in fact shape your reality and in fact others realities so if you really believe someone else is if you believe someone else is monstrous, they will become monstrous when they mm. are around you because you really believe it. And in his world, actually, it's quite common. There are a lot of people who have this. He has these kind of wonderful jokes about a whole load of people who all believe that they are the world's greatest swordsman and they're all kind of funky it out. <laughs> but it, that's a world that's totally unstable and where kind of if, as long as you can convince yourself something about something is absolutely yeah. true, it becomes true so that actually is it's kind of it is almost a kind of normal thing so people can become if you believe if you convince enough people you're a god you become a god and yeah. that is kind of it's fairly standard it's something that people kind of almost kind of agonize about it's, so that's a kind of really interesting way of looking at it in fact yeah it's very different to magic traditional sense it's, it's interesting as well in that obviously the first thought is that we're you know we're, we're kind of reassessing that and and thinking about how it would work in a different way in a in a, a fantasy world um, and I think as well it's it's also interesting that sometimes and I think you know I'm as guilty of this as anybody sometimes we're thinking of the way in which characters who are attempting to achieve something that they can't achieve where technology or magic is used as as a solve and it you know it is used as a solve for something some condition that they have or or some flaw some physical flaw or some mental flaw in terms of of what they are i i think it's it's interesting and you know to to borrow the example that you've mentioned it's interesting to think of it in a different way in that regard and not to you know not to think of these things as solves because ultimately you know they're kind of not you know or at least they're not there aren't solves for the for the readers who might relate to the characters so so yeah you know and I, I think it you know it's a bit crass sometimes to just simply um express perhaps tech and and magic as solves to you know to particular problems um i don't know i mean um you know i, I don't know what your take is on that i'm really careful not to use solves sure. i mean again i'm writing he's a very I've, i'm a historian i uh, i read a lot of historical fiction as well as fantasy fiction i kind of get i came I've read a lot of mythology. I came to fantasy through growing up, reading the Norse myths, the classical myths. And, of course, they don't have souls. They don't have 
people wielding of magic magical items are not souls they are in fact often curses you think of odin gains wisdom by sacrificing an eye so in fact he's not solving he's disabling himself or um i think of something like the the three the weird the three gray sisters in um mm. the story of perseus you have one mm. eye and one tooth between them you have this weird knowledge but have to but sort of literally passing an eye between them so to be able to see and i've coming i'm really, I'm really coming from that tradition where magic mm. isn't some kind of essentially super tech you pin your fingers and suddenly the blind can see or suddenly you can make sort of, it's not a superpower it's a strange and uncontrollable thing that is used that people have that can't really be explained so people just have this sort of burst of power which destroys they can destroy with a word or they can foresee the future but it's not particularly controlled it's not it's not a superpower it's something really strange and kind of mythic and that for me is absolutely how i use magic and i really don't want to use it as some kind of nice little sort of solving device yeah no i i would agree and i, I think i mean to relate an example to the listeners one of the things that's been strong about the elite game in the past was its first person perspective of the the character in the cockpit staring out of the view screen and actually prior to them because they've just released the patch with uh the commanders where you can design your face you can design your your sort of how you look and there you know there's an idea to then move on towards being able to walk around your ship see other people and so on but the fundamental idea and i think i think there's a there's a difficulty here and and i think this relates to wider science fiction too the fundamental idea of you being blind to how you look and flying a spaceship from a first person perspective without any option of moving to a third person perspective allows anonymity of who is who is in the the chair and i think that's been exploited really well by some of the fiction writers who've who've written work for elite dangerous because they've recognized that you don't know who's in that chair you don't know what the issues are in their life you don't know what they may be doing you don't know what gender they are you don't know what ethnicity they are you don't know anything about them other than how well they fly and actually that's a quite a cool thing and it's quite a challenge for a you know a computer game to now come to a point where it's starting to represent the people that are, are in those chairs particularly as there is a tradition in science fiction which is a bit problematic where solving becomes the be all and end all of representation of disability you know we have more technology so we can do this and actually that doesn't really it doesn't add to the debate particularly well beyond solving as it were so i think you know yeah relating that to fantasy obviously the we your fantasy could probably learn that couldn't it in that science fiction's got that wrong at times and maybe fantasy has an opportunity if it's going to embrace slightly more challenging material it's got an opportunity to to learn from that because because i find the idea that the idea of the kind of being in the cockpit in a sense because it essentially becomes you i mean if it's a if it's a first person player game it essentially absolutely becomes you and yeah i mean i guess it would be quite cool if you had a world where actually i don't know if you were walking around become virtually if you were walking around you'd see a reflection in a mirror and that would be you and you could make it you could design it to look Mm. kind of like whatever you wanted but essentially in that kind of but essentially you're talking about role playing an individual role playing mm. scenario here if mm. you're kind of you are in the cockpit and you are essentially your computer is the is the, the spaceship controls 
it's always you. You are kind of, you're basically engaging in some kind of improv theatre where it's, you're telling yourself a story where no matter what the, you wonder what you, the character looks like, they're you. Mm. So absolutely, you know, it would be quite fun to be able to design a little figure where if you happen to walk into a, if your character happens to walk into a room with a mirror, they could see any kind of, you could design it to look like anything, see anything like you. It would be quite, really quite fun. Like when I was doing, we used to play Dungeons and Dragons, it would be quite fun to play a dwarf, it would be quite fun to play a gnome or an elf. But in the end, it is you. And when you imagine mm. that person's face, and essentially they are you, just with stick on pointy ears or different skin colour or whatever. And that, it would almost kind of seem reductive to then have this kind of, well, we're going to allow you to, we're going to kind of go back to making this more like a third person thing because some of that immediacy is lost. And that's, I mean, when a good, a good novel in any genre, you become the characters, even if they're described and you, you know that this character is a, even if I'm reading a character who is a middle-aged man with black skin, mm. he's me if he's well-written. Yeah, he's sure. just me kind of with a slightly different <laughs> with a slightly different mask on yeah there's there's an element of your humanity sort of placed in that person i guess what i'm getting at is that when when a games company designs that kind of character generator i kind of think they've got a responsibility to try to embrace all of humanity you know and that means particularly if you're in a zero gravity environment that means if somebody has one arm if somebody has one eye if somebody is of a particular ethnicity or is of a, a particular gender or anything else i want to see those options there because i want the widest possible embracement of the diversity of who we are because actually it's one of humanity's biggest strengths is its diversity i mean we've we've finally come out of a very long tunnel where it's no longer a thing to have a character who isn't white in fantasy it no yeah. longer becomes if you have a character who's black or who's a woman it no longer becomes the entire book is them having to deal with this incredibly incredibly profound and complicated fact that clearly informs every moment of their life and i think it's really important that we move into having that about about disability about people kind of with different any about all different kinds of forms of the body that, um, I mean, the lovely book I've been reading recently is um, Ben Galley's Heart of Stone, which has a very, has a, mm. admittedly a very minor character, but just it's occasionally mentioned that he's in a wheelchair. So you just, it just occasionally mentions, you can hear the creak of his wheels as they walk down the corridor together, a number of characters. One of them, you can hear his footsteps, you can hear the echo of one of their footsteps and the creak of the wheelchair, the, the character's wheelchair. And it's not, you know, it's never a thing. If you were reading that book very quickly, you probably wouldn't notice. You might well not notice the characters yeah. in the wheelchair if you're sort of skimming through because it's only just mentioned in the yeah. same way that you might occasionally mention a character has a particular hair colour, a particular eye colour, just because or particularly wears a particular dress in a particular colour, just because it's just there to give a bit of character. And I really like that. That it's not mm. it's not a thing at all. It's no, no one ever said no one says the whole kind of oh, but you're in a wheelchair or a character never kind of says, I'm in a wheelchair. It's just um yeah. it's just there the way that I don't ever feel the need to suddenly say, oh, but Alan, you've got brown hair. It's just kind of <laughs> a thing I know about you, but that's yeah. totally kind of irrelevant to anything. When I was doing this disability panel, various people were then kind of saying, but, but you don't hear, you know, this guy kind of, you don't hear the fact that his life is more difficult because he's in a wheelchair. You know, he and you're just assuming he's just able to kind of stride around exactly the same as the able-bodied guys. And of course he mm. can't. And you're sort of, you're totally erasing the fact that, he might have any kind of issues 
sort of pretending that this is this wonderful world and that kind of you're just erasing the fact that as soon as you get to a flight of stairs, he's going to be stuck. There's never going to be a right answer, but it's just nice to kind of try and be a bit more inclusive and just sort of not, maybe not dwell on it, in fact. And we've got to explore it. And I think, you know, gone are the Alfred Bester days and bless him, he tried his hardest in many of his short stories to sort of get representation past his editors at different times. You know, there'd be tiny little mentions of, of brown skin or something else that he would manage to sneak past because, of course, they still viewed things through the white male default. And thankfully, those days are, are a bit past you know there's still writing out there that's that's struggling with some of that but you know at least we're getting to a stage where essentially we're being more imaginative not just as you know as writers but as readers and i think sometimes we can still be a little guilty of defaulting um you know but it is worth exploring space can be lonely but sometimes that's just what you want Choose your holiday, the gas giants of Alioth, partying the night away in Yorkville on Aquada, or even go back and find your ancestors on Earth. The Rockforth Corporation makes your holiday special and will let nothing disturb you. You've flown ships at max speed. You've felt the power of the 30 megawatt mining laser. You've experienced the efficiency of the MB4 mining machine. Wow. But it leaves every hardcore miner with just one question. Why can't I get a shave that's that fast, close and efficient? Introducing the Saracen MB5 shaving drone. It's so smooth. Combining the power of a mining laser with the convenience of a drone. It's like every hair is targeted by a fighter and destroyed. Saracen's patented shaving drone attaches to your face at the start of the day. Leave it to do its work, and when you come back to check, your face is shaved. He's so smooth. It's like I'm mining my face. The Saracen MB5 shaving drone. Now I feel manly. Saracen shaving. Making shaving an unnecessary adventure. Greetings Commanders, Second Technician Fozzer Forrester here. If you'd like to catch the crew of the Orange Sidewinder, we broadcast live every Tuesday at 8.30pm BST. Fly safe, and if you can't do that, fly dangerous. So turning then to The Court of the Broken Knives, which is your first novel that HarperCollins are publishing in June and very, very close to LaveCon, if people want to know. And obviously we'll, we'll try and talk more about it at LaveCon as well. What would you say the elements that you're attempting to explore in your writing of fantasy with the first of your trilogy? The Court of Broken Knives is grimdark epic fantasy. So it's it's very historically informed. I sort of I did a classics degree, and there's a lot of sort of classical history and dark age, even bronze age history in there. And it's very military as well. There's a lot of there's a lot of battle scenes, a lot of fighting. What I'm really trying to explore, I think, in it is the kind of dynamics of power, the fact that 
throughout human history, someone has stood up and said, I am your leader. You see those blokes over there with big swords? I want you to run at them and I want you to try and kill as many as possible before they kill you. Now, I mean, rationally, the only response to that is fuck off and leg it the other way. But no, throughout human history, people have kind of, <laughs> people have done this. And it's that kind of question of what on earth leads people to someone stands up and says, you know, it's your glorious destiny. So get on a boat, sail across the ocean, sail hundreds of miles away from your family and everyone you love, and then probably die. And loads of people, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Sign me up. But what, what is going on there, that kind of dynamics of power and actually what's kind of going on? You take the kind of classic charismatic leader, the kind of the Aragorn, the Randall Thorne, the kind of, you know, the great, the chosen one, and he's leading his troops into battle against the Dark Lord. And, oh, the dark, he's just, you know, this is such a kind of, so many of us will die and this is all so terrible. Well, why, why, why are people following him? What is this? What is this dynamic of leadership that means people will fight and die for someone? And that, that's really what I'm trying to kind of unpick. It's sort of, I've read the Iliad a hundred times. I've read so many versions of the life of Alexander the Great, Beowulf. What is going on here that people will sort of will follow this, this great hero figure? And do you think then that part of what you're exploring in your writing is the small perspective, the, you know, the micro perspective of the foot soldier and the trooper and the, you know, the people who accept the rhetoric and accept the fact that someone else comes out with the plan, as it were, and they trust in that person's plan. Is that is that part of what you're looking at? It is partly, yes. I mean, I'm quite focused around the figure of the leader and the kind of what they feel about this power they have and how they inspire this power. But yeah, the kind of dynamic between the leader and the followers and the way the way the leader sees themselves and the way that those around them see them and respond to them is absolutely central to what I'm doing. It's that the kind of dynamic interaction between people. It's absolutely absolutely the heart of what I'm writing. What struck me and has struck other people in terms of the way in which you write is obviously is the way in which you you paint description and you paint scenes in your writing, which I think is a treat in itself and obviously the the dramatic quality that you bring to to when you're choosing to read your work have you had a number of reactions i mean i know that i've spoken to people who've reacted to when you've read and they've come away going oh actually yeah that sounds great what do you attribute that to i mean do you think there's a particular voice that's coming out of this book where does that come from in your writing background i think it actually probably comes from having a background in Poetry, if that doesn't totally put all, your, all the listeners off. Um, <laughs> no, my, my father's a poet, and mm. I grew up very much with the flow of the prose. I see myself as very much yeah. someone. I see myself as a – I'm creating prose. I'm, I'm telling a story, but what's absolutely crucial to me, I'm not creating incredibly intricate, incredibly complicated, twisty, turny – desperately trying to work out what's going on plots. I'm using – I have a mm. fairly simple plot, but what I'm doing is – trying to tell that story in a kind of in as rich and complex and profound a way beautiful a way as I can absolutely really trying to get into what people are experiencing and what they're seeing I grew up walking the English landscape watching my father walk the English landscape and then be just inspired to just stop take a notebook out of his pocket and start writing down his thoughts and feelings about the world he was walking in and how we what he was looking at and what he was seeing and how it was making him feeling and I'm 
very much trying to write that, but in a kind of fantasy setting, you know, seeing a battle in my mind, but seeing kind of how one would really feel in that, what it really would be like to be in that, not in terms of technical battle details, in terms of absolutely the kind of the emotion that's evoked, which I think comes from poetry, which is very, very much about unmediated expression of emotion and of feeling rather than necessarily of kind of coherent meaning even. I mean, there's a way of writing, and I, I think we've probably talked about this a little before in that when you look at science fiction particularly at space opera space opera is nonsense most of it is nonsense because what's going on is your x-wings or your spitfires in space a space battle in in that regard is probably not what would happen you know most space battles if they were ever going to occur would occur from thousands of miles of distance with people pressing a button and waiting but actually what people write and when they write them well when timothy zahn writes well when michael stackpole writes well is they write sensation and it's similar to you know to what you're saying and actually the sort of dogfighting element becomes not about precision and you know there's a certain amount of precision in that i know you're fairly well schooled with a sword if you need to be uh, in terms of knowing what position a sword goes to when you swing it and you move it around but actually a lot of that precision doesn't matter quite so much what matters is the vision of what's there the vision of what characters see and the sensation the things that are happening to them the emotional reactions because that's kind of how we all see the world i would have thought the basic premise of most fancy novels similarly is absolutely absurd it's actually it's a sort of running joke among fancy authors you have to do your synopsis for your editor or your agent and you have to actually just you know, set out the plot in the company lines and it always just looks absolutely totally mortifyingly there's this farm boy and he discovers he's a chosen one. And the Dark Lord, Zagablar, something unpronounceable, comes down. And, you know, I mean, it just, it just, yeah. fantasy novels in the actual, if you just strip down the basic plot of a fantasy novel, it is just so embarrassingly stupid. People just, I mean, I've heard, you know, I've sort of been speaking to other authors, kind of like, God, I, I can't stand this. And it's just, you know, it just makes me look like the most, it's just humiliatingly bad. But of course, it's not about the plot in the end. It's mm. about the writing, it's about the, the sensation that's evoked. You condense most of the really big fancy novels down to any mm. kind of coherent plot. They just become completely absurd. It's about the world. It's about the emotion. It's about the sensation. It's about the absolute. There's the incredible excitement of this otherness, this mm. weirdness, this going so far beyond kind of normal day-to-day mundane human experience in the human world. And that's really what I'm trying to get in my writing, the kind of absolute mythicness of it. I I kind of don't like fancy novels with a very kind of complex magical system that's shaped to explain it all. Mm. I just want to get the kind of the weirdness of it, strangeness of it, this world that is strange and alien and different, but also filled with people who are very, very human. And that, to me, is absolutely why I love fantasy. That's at the centre of fantasy. That's absolutely what's central to fantasy to me. And it's why, kind of, again, it's, I mean, I really, I do enjoy watching science fiction films. There's something profoundly that kind of the fleet's going to get a hike, fleet's coming out of hyperspace, engage guns. I mean, that that's absolutely wonderful as well. There's something about that that really does something to you. And it is, of course, it's technologically probably absurd, but it's just, it's just so damn exciting. And that's what we're trying to do. It's not the kind of not the plausibility of it it's just the, the mm. excitement the experience of it the wonder of it and that's what i'm trying yeah. to capture in my language yeah and not necessarily the precision of it i mean um you know i've read a number of new science fiction novelists and occasionally one of the things that 
new novelists will do is they they get very caught up on the precision and actually by getting caught up on the precision they lose the connection with the people and the connection with the emotive context and of course if a character is emotively connected with what's happening to them then the reader is emotively connected with what's happening to them so it you know it becomes part of that so I'm aware that this is coming out on the 29th of June with Lavecon just being the week before I'm hoping that we can force you to to give us a sneak preview so hopefully you're going to do a little reading for us on the reading evening at Lavecon which I think is on the Saturday night and then we can get a sense of of what we're talking about because I think certainly that quality of of vividness is something that I think that any listeners will enjoy and and they'll be able to sample and decide whether uh, whether it's a a book that they want to read which um, I think they they should it's the first part of of a trilogy am I right yes it's the series is called Empires of Dust Uh, yeah there's a trilogy and I'm beginning to think now about and I'm coming to the I'm currently writing book three there's a very coherent story arc for the three books it it is the kind of traditional classic Tolkien-esque three book sequence which you wouldn't really want to read books two and three in isolation and if you've read book one hopefully you'll really want to go on and read books two and three because the story will close very clearly on book three but if you read book two on your own, on its own, frankly, you don't have a clue what's happening at the beginning and it won't be the end. <laughs> but, um, so it's, it's, but it does very clearly end on book three. I've already written the ending. Um, I know exactly how it's going to end. This is not going to turn into some kind of massive never-ending thing like certain people's <laughs> novels. Ahem, ahem. Um, but obviously I'm already beginning to think about kind of what could go beyond and what I could do next and I'd like to carry on writing in the same world because I love the world and I love the characters I'm posting. So hopefully then that's the Court of the Broken Knives which is due out on 29th of June this year that's the hardcover version I'm not sure when the paperback's due out yet I'm, I'm sure it will be forthcoming afterwards that's probably the trade paperback to begin with and then the Kindle edition I don't know if you know yet when the Kindle version's coming out do you? As far as I'm aware, the Kindle version is coming out at the same time as the hardback, I think. Ah. It's been published in America by Orbit. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. seem to be able to buy the US paperback in England from Amazon from August when it comes out in America, even though you're not supposed to be able to buy it because obviously in Britain it's not published by Orbit, it's not published by Hardback. I do not know. I have no idea. Excitingly, okay. I was um, listening to clips from the possible narrator for the audio version today, which was quite exciting. Wow. Although really daunting because um obviously i i love reading my own book i read aloud aloud a lot as i'm writing i'm writing for cadence i know so i'm very familiar with how it sounds it's important to me how it sounds i don't particularly like the idea of someone else reading it because he stops up the cadence <laughs> or, <laughs> and also because i mean some of the characters i hear them their voice is very very clear in my head i feel quite self-conscious sure. about reading some of the passages because i know how this character sounds and they do not sound like me and they may not sound like the narrator either so um but yeah it's just quite exciting and it's quite amazing thinking of people listening to someone intoning my book jack and Roy style fantastic so for anyone that wants to to check this out you can go take a look at the harper collins website there is a listing for court of the broken knives there gives you a nice little uh, synopsis here saying perfect for fans of mark lawrence 
and R. Scott Backer. The Court of the Broken Knives is the explosive debut novel by one of grimdark fantasy's most exciting new voices. So obviously you've managed to impress a few people there who have given a glowing review in terms of when it's coming out. Uh, Similarly, it's available on Amazon. So the listing on Amazon, again, The Court of the Broken Knives, Empires of the Dust, book one under Anna's name and yeah you can check that out so hopefully that's going to be released to start with on June the 29th we'll start to see a few reviews I'm sure go up around that point in time and uh, we'll get an exclusive preview at LaveCon which would be fantastic for all the gamers and players of Elite Dangerous so Anna thank you so much for letting us know about this hopefully we can get you to do your your little dramatic reading which um, I think everybody will love and enjoy any idea which bit you're going to read I'm going to read the beginning again, the first chapter, Uh, which is, I love reading that. I mean, I guess if you are a gamer who enjoys the kind of first person, a lot of the kind of star battle stuff, actually, I kind of think this might appeal to you. It's, it's kind of, it's Bronze Age historical fiction, it's probably historical fantasy. I don't play a lot of computer games, but that very visual sense of that kind of mm. absolutely being in the midst of the conf- in midst of conflict and really seeing it and seeing the colours and seeing the kind of seeing the light and experiencing it and feeling it and that being absolutely up front there with it in your face. I'm I really, really try and evoke that a lot. That's something that's absolutely central to my writing. I kind of actually I kind of guess I really, really love that kind of science fiction science fiction films that do that kind of thing. I Hmm. they're all classics like that wonderful like the the classic the big triple fight at the end of the yeah, at the end of pretend the jedi when you're watching this hmm. watching the battle in space or kind of some of the bits of um the david lynch june film where it's absolutely just kind of there in your face this conflict i've hmm. i've watched seen a lot of those and i really i'm kind of trying to do something similar to that but with bronze swords and warrior heroes <laughs> <laughs> in a book rather than a film or a game brilliant brilliant and i think certainly i think it'll be a an interesting lesson when when we have the reading evening which uh, at the moment uh, you're scheduled up amongst a couple of other fantasy writers and some science fiction too maybe a little bit of horror so yeah there'll be a nice cross section of different bits and pieces there and hopefully i think you're you're going to be taking the the writing masterclass on the sunday morning as well uh, if we can persuade you is that all right? Yes. Yes. No. That's fine. Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm very bad so, at honest, honest critiques. So I'm probably telling everyone, "Oh, that's amazing. That's just incredible." But um, I tend to either be very kind of that's appalling, or I just kind of feel I really should just be incredibly intuitive about everything. So, but we shall see. But no, um, that should be fun. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward to. It. I mean, it's it's great. You know, if um, writers are always looking to improve, and actually, when uh, when you get to that writing workshop that we do at LaveCon, it is always about sitting down and and just learning a little bit more about what the next step is, whether that's about how to approach an agent, how to approach a publisher, or whether it's about you know very specific things in writing. It's always received very positively by everyone who chooses to join us. Okay, so that's going to do us for Data Slate tonight. So thank you very much for joining us, folks. Um, Hopefully you'll be able to check out Anna's The Court of the Broken Knives in her sample reading, which she'll be doing at LaveCon. If you can't catch that, then it is published on the 29th of June. um, And Anna's going to be at a few conventions this year. Are you doing Nine Worlds this year? I'm going to be everywhere. I'm going to be at Edgelit in Derby. I'm going to be at Nine World. I'm going to be at Worldcon Helsinki. I'm going to be at Bristolcon in the and um, I'm going to be at FancyCon and Bristolcon in the autumn. I'm going to be the first 
SFF genre author at the highly prestigious Ways with Words Literature Festival in oh, July, which will be absolutely fantastic. And I'm doing some mm. signings around the country as well. So um, as I, I'm just an investor at show off and I love reading my books. <laughs> we'll read it every opportunity anyway. <laughs> fantastic and i'm sure we'll enjoy it so yes okay listeners so back to space for you uh, take care of yourselves and uh, if you can't fly safe then fly dangerous that's it from data fly dangerous. Tonight. always fly dangerous <laughs> always fly dangerous good, <laughs> good night nice